We're going to go ahead and continue on in our journey into uh, the book of James, and we're going to go ahead and finish up in uh, James chapter 1, where we ended off last week, and then we're going to start diving into chapter 2. So we're going to have a, a quick recap. So remember last week we learned about the testing of our faith, the, the various trials that we might go through they are going to come, and in them how we should count them as joy because it produces inside of us resolve and steadfastness. We learned that temptation is going to come, but we learned that we need to remain steadfast through the whole thing and just, just continue on in our faith until the day of the Lord. Amen? So next, we're going we're gonna to finish up chapter 1. We've got a couple of slides in chapter 1. And, and in this one, uh, James begins to speak on how we need to be not only hearers of the Word. How many know it's easy to be a hearer of the Word? All you've got to do is show up on Sunday and you've heard a little bit of Word, right? But we need to also be doers of the Word. That's what we're going we're to look at today. And then we also need to learn about bridling our tongue in order that our religion should not be worthless. We'll spend a little more time explaining what that means, but bridling your tongue like you would bridle a horse means you control it. You have the reins. You tell it what to do. Then we get into chapter 2. And in chapter 2, we begin to have some instruction on how we're not supposed to show partiality based on people's circumstances. And James particularly deals with the rich and the poor, but really it's any circumstance. We're going to get instructions on loving our neighbor and what that means. And we're going to learn that if we, we also, if we keep any part of the law, that you're obligated to the entire part of the law. And if you break one part of the law, then you've actually broken the whole law. And then finally, we're going to tackle, tackle the, the big topics. Actually, what I've entitled the message, Faith and Works, we're going to deal with faith and works. Because that's always a good hot-button topic in the Christian community. And we're going to see what the, the Word of God has to say about it. So praise God. The first scripture we're going to look at is James 1.22 through 25. And it says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer but who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. You know, if you want to be an ineffective Christian, if you want to, I can tell you how to do it. All you got to do is show up on church on Sunday and do nothing else. Just listen. If you want to be ineffective in your walk, that's all you have to do. It's actually really simple. And plenty of people do it too. But the Bible says that if we're doing that, then we're deceiving ourselves. Because what you're doing is you're, you're coming and you're hearing the word preached. And you begin to see who you are in Christ. It's like he says here, you're a, you're a man who is staring intently at his natural face in the mirror. You know, you look at the mirror and you begin to look at all the moles and the freckles and the pores and how your nose sits. And you begin to see how you are. But then as soon as you walk away, you forget what you looked like. You wouldn't be able to recognize yourself in a crowd because you've already forgot what you just stared at and studied intently. That's what happens when we're in church and we're hearing the Word preached and we read what the Word of God says about us. We begin to see everything about us and we're staring at who we are. We're learning who we are. But if we don't actually live that Word out, it's like walking away and forgetting who you are. You see, faith in the Word demands that you be a doer of the word. You can't just hear it. To have real faith demands action. It means you have to walk out what you're hearing. And the truth is even the, the world understands this. 
That's why, as Christians, we can be viewed as hypocritical. Even the world understands that if you say you, you're a Christian, there should be some sort of evidence. If you say you believe what the Bible says, and you say that you, you, you believe in all these things, then why aren't you doing them in your life? See, there's people that claim to, to believe the Bible, but there's no action that backs that up. They say, you know what, the Word of God says that we shouldn't lie. And then they lie all day long. They say we shouldn't commit adultery, we shouldn't do these things, but they go ahead and do that all day long. They say that there's no other God except for God in heaven, but they worship football, or they worship their car, or they worship their job. They're acting hypocritical, because they're just hearers of the word, but as soon as they leave on Sunday morning, they forget who they are, and they turn into their old self. But the truth is, these people might actually even believe what they're hearing. There's just no conviction. There's no real faith. It's that word that, that lands on, on the, the, the rocky soil and gets stirred away, stolen away. You know, when we hear the word on Sunday morning, it can make us excited. It can ignite faith in our lives. We can get all pumped up and ready to tackle the word. Anybody ever had a, an experience like that? You get all pumped up and excited, ready to tackle the word, the world, and then next, the next Monday it just kind of falls away. You just kind of forget everything. That's the danger in revival meetings. You ever been to a revival meeting? Everybody's getting excited, and, and on that Sunday or those whatever meetings, it's like our, our level of faith and action gets way up here. And that's good. That's what revival is supposed to do. It's supposed to lift us up here. The problem is the goal is that once you get there, you stay there. But what often happens in revival is, is there's a short time where we get lifted up and excited and then we fall back to where we were before. As soon as the, the meeting's over, the fire fades inside of us. We looked in that mirror, we saw who we are, and it was awesome. We liked what we saw, but we walked away and forgot immediately what we looked like. Jesus described it like this in Matthew 13, 1-8. He said, The same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood, stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them out. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. See, when you hear the word, it can be stolen. It can fall on shallow soil, and it can be drowned out by the world. Which is probably what usually happens. People with good intent... They hear the word, they get excited about it, but then it's stolen by the world. The enemy wants to steal the word that falls in your life. But the other option is it can fall on fertile soil and produce great fruit in your life. And that fruit that is produced is a result of doing the word. Not being a hearer only, but being a doer of the word. See, when we hear the word, we need to do the things that are inside of it. We need to lay hands on the sick. We need to not shy away from that. We need to pray for our brethren. We need to make sure that, that we are renewing our mind daily by spending time in the Word. We need to speak to our mountains, right? That's acting on our faith. That's being a doer of the Word. We need to claim and walk in victory. We're not, we're not walking towards victory, but we're walking from victory. We're already victorious in Jesus Christ. That's living out our faith. That's being a doer of the Word. And we need to exercise our freedom. 
And what that means is not our, our, our freedom to do whatever we want, not licentiousness, but it's, it's our freedom to not sin. We're not in bondage anymore. We're actually free from all that stuff. And like I said, the folly of being just a hearer of the Word, the problem with being just a hearer of the Word is that we begin to be viewed as hypocrites. And that does great damage to the church. I've heard people say that, why do I want to be a Christian? They're all just hypocrites. People will look at your life and say, man, you keep telling me that it's great being a Christian, but you look just like everybody else. You know, in, in uh, 1993, there was that meeting of, annual meeting of the Heart Association, the American Heart Association. There was 300 doctors and nurses and medical uh, researchers that met in Atlanta to s- discuss the, the advent of, of, of heart research and what's going on in, in people's hearts in America. And they're, they're discovering that the low-fat diet was playing such an important role in the lives of, of people and that consuming fast food and all that different stuff was terrible for your heart. Yet they found, when researchers were looking at this conference, they found that, that there was uh, an equal amount of people that were attending this conference eating fast food, eating burgers, eating all this, the same junk that every other uh, conference that comes through does. And you would think that these people are out there, they're studying, they're learning this stuff, they're teaching that, hey, if you're going to teach it, you need to have a low-fat diet. Maybe you should be doing it yourself, right? But they weren't. They were eating it at the same rate as everybody else at this conference. So when they were asked, a cardio- one of the cardiologists was asked, don't you think that partaking in these high-fat fast food meals sets a bad example? And he says, no, not me, because I took my name tag off. They figure just because I, I'm not saying I'm a cardiologist and I'm, that I'm good to go. We don't want to be people like that. We don't want to say, no, I'm not setting a bad example because no one at work knows I'm a Christian. We want to be known as people that have the light of the world. Like I've said many times, times before, as soon as you claim to be a, Christ, a Christian, you are a, a light on a lampstand. You're a city on a hill. The question is, are you shining brightly? Are you, are you dragging Jesus' name through the mud? Then in James chapter 1, 26-27, as we continue on, it says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans, widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. First thing we have to recognize is the word religion being used here. And like I was talking about in the introduction, is, is not really how we view it today. This word translated religion here is only used five times in the New Testament. It's used uh, right here in James one twenty six through 27 a couple times or multiple times. It's used in Acts chapter 26 verse 5. It's used in Colossians chapter 2 verse 18. Five times. And all the other times it's translated as worship and not religion. So we're not talking about religious traditions and all that stuff. What he's talking about here, if you just kind of replace that word, if anyone thinks he is worshipful and does not bridle his tongue, a worshiper of God, then that person's worship is worthless. See, what, what James is trying to say here is that anyone who is in the service of God or the worship of God and does not bridle his tongue as deceiving himself, and that person's religion, or that person's worship, that person's service, is worthless. 
In other words, what comes out of your mouth is a window to your heart. If, if a man is up there claiming to be a worshiper of God, serving God, but his, his tongue is just running rampant and doing all kinds of things that aren't godly, it may just be you know, lip service on the outside. That's what James is saying. It's, it's worthless. In Matthew 12, 34-35, Jesus said, You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. What comes out of our mouth shows who we really are on the inside. If you don't bridle your tongue, if you're speaking all kinds of filthy nonsense, that's coming from somewhere on the inside. So if if on Sunday mornings everything looks great, you're worshiping God, everybody thinks you're awesome, but as soon as Monday rolls around you get to work and you're just cussing and tossing up a storm and saying bad things and the the old man is, is running out of you, then you need to question where your heart's really at. You see, pure and undefiled religion or pure and undefiled service or worship of God is living out of the love of Christ. He gives an example of it here. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God. And remember when we say religion, we're not talking about religious traditions. We're talking about that worship and service of God is to what? Visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world. Basically, it's living out of the love of Christ, doing things that are in keeping with the change that happened inside of you, the love of Christ inside of you. Visiting orphans and widows in their affliction, these are the kind of things that that people that have a heart changed by God do. Taking care of people, loving people. And then it says to keep oneself unstained from the world because we're not a part of this world. In 1 John 2, 15-17, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. We're not part of this world. And to desire what the world has, the, the passing pleasure of sin... That is deceptive religion. If you're, if you're praising God on, on, on Sunday, but going after what the world has to offer during the week, then once again, we need to evaluate where our heart really is. You see, and I want to encourage all of us to, to hear the words of, of Jesus' little brother as he gives all this wisdom to us recognizing that they're the words of God and and making sure that as we hear these things, we're not just hearing them going in one ear and out the other, but let's be doers of these words that are given to us. Let's have a religion or worship, a service of God that is pure and undefiled from from a heart that has been changed by Christ. So now we're going to go ahead and get into chapter 2. James 2, 1 through 4 says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? How we see people should strictly be based on Jesus Christ. 
we should see everybody through that lens of the fact that Jesus died for them. We shouldn't look at people's social status or their past. Just because someone's had failures isn't a reason to treat them differently. Just because someone's made mistakes is not a reason to consider them less valuable than somebody else. And this can be really for, for any reason. James in particular is talking about rich men and poor men, but it can mean anything. It can be you know fine, upstanding citizens or somebody who, who went to prison who, who murdered somebody, but they've given their life to God. There are great men of God, even in today's age, that, that in the past have been murderers, but now they're mighty men of God. There's plenty of people in the Bible that are like that, right? Moses was a murderer. David was a murderer. Plenty of people were murderers, but did great things for God. Should we look at them less because of their past failings? Absolutely not. Now, to be clear, I'm not talking about acting unwisely. You know, if there's currently a person that is on the, the most wanted list and he's on TV for just murdering a bunch of people and he comes into church on Sunday, we're going to be wise about that. We're going to call the police. We might treat him a little bit differently, not because God loves him less, but because we want to make sure that our people are safe. But we do need to ensure that we're not treating people differently just because they don't fit into social norms of today. We need to make sure that we're not treating them differently because this family seems to be better off than another family. Basically, you guys have heard the old proverb, don't judge a book by its cover. That's basically the advice that we're giving. We can't judge people by what they look like. Jesus didn't judge people by their appearance. In Matthew twenty-two sixteen. It says, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, teacher, this is the, 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 the religious people at the time. They're trying to trip Jesus up. But this is what they say about him because they know it's true. They say, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. Jesus wasn't swayed by appearances. In 2 Corinthians five sixteen through 17, it says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. There, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Anybody in Christ is brand new. We should see people through the lens of Jesus Christ, through his eyes. The truth is, without Jesus, we're all in the same boat. Without Jesus, we're all just as bad as anybody else. It doesn't matter what our past is. Without Jesus, we are nothing. We're lost. But with Jesus, we are made perfect. We've been remade. We're a brand new creation. The oldest past. Behold, the new has come. And we need to recognize this about one another. When we look at people's lives, we need to remember the oldest past. The new has come. We need to see people as Jesus sees them. We need to see people as Jesus if they're Christians. They have a new life inside of them. That's who they are. We also need to recognize that because we've been given a new spirit inside of us, this changes who we are. This changes how we behave, or it should. The reason is, is because God shows no partiality. 
And if God shows no partiality and it's His Spirit inside of us, then we should have the same behavior, the same actions. In Romans 2.11-12, Paul said, For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Paul recognized that God showed no partiality. And Peter recognizes the same thing in Acts 10.34-36. He says, So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears Him and does what, what is right is acceptable to Him. As for the word that He sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. Anyone who fears God is acceptable to God not based on their past or social status or any of those things. You see, the example that James uses right here is the rich and the poor man. And when we treat people differently because of their income, we are not seeing the world through God's eyes. But we're looking at them through the lens of the world. Because somehow in our cultures, in our societies, if somebody is rich and famous, then they're somehow better than everybody else. But it's simply not true. And it says when we do this, James says that we've made distinctions between ourselves and we have become judges with evil thoughts. What does it mean we become judges with evil thoughts? Well, most of the time when we make distinctions between each other, it's usually we're doing these types of things for our own gain. You know, we want to spend time with the popular kids because maybe a little bit of that will rub off on us. If we can befriend, even if they're terrible to us, we want to befriend them so that we can be in that crowd. If somebody's rich and famous, we want to get to know them because maybe some of that money will roll downhill, that fame will roll downhill. These are evil thoughts when we treat people differently for these things. And then also at that very moment, you have deemed somebody else more valuable than another. But the truth is, God has valued all of us equally. He sent His Son for us. We're valued at the price of His Son. But when we judge people with evil thoughts and we, we make distinctions, we're, we're basically saying, yeah, God, you really didn't, you don't know what you're talking about. This person is obviously worth more than, than somebody else. If a visitor comes in and he is a Christian, we should accept him because Christ is inside of him. And if he is not, we should accept him because Christ went to the cross for him. Amen? Amen. In James 2, 5-7, it says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which He has promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? So James was just talking about partiality, right? As he continues on into here to continue his point, he points out that the truth is that God is the one who chooses the poor to be rich in faith. The very people that we, would, that we would shun because they're not rich, He chose them to be rich in faith. The very same people that we chose, that we tend to choose to hold down, to push away, are the people that were chosen by God to be heirs of the kingdom. They're rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Personally, I think the reason why many poor people have such great faith, the reason why they're in this position is because they don't have anything else to put their faith in. 
You see us, the people that are, are better off and rich, they don't have to put their faith in God because they got it all figured out. They got plenty of money. They got great jobs. They have all these things. So they don't have anything else. They have all these things in their life that can steal their faith away because they put their faith in that. But the poor man, he doesn't have anything in his life to, to steal his faith away. So he trusts God with all his heart. Now, that's not to say that people who have much can have the same kind of faith. It's just a general tendency. The truth is that we're all equal. It doesn't matter. People that have less than us, people that have more than us, as far as God's concerned, they're the same. Paul addressed the Corinthian church like this in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 27. He was talking to the members of the church. He said for, in verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Those very people who, who might have been shunned by the people that James was talking to, they're the ones who made up the church. And like I said, to be clear, it's not their poorness that secures them the kingdom, but it's their love for God and their faith in Him and their faith in His Son that does as much. Rich people and poor people can both do that. But you remember Jesus said it's harder for a rich man to get into heaven because his faith is in so much other things. You see, it was the, the people that James were addressing, it was their tendency to dishonor the poor man, to push him aside, and to honor the rich man. But James wanted to say, you know what, this is wrong. This isn't the way we should be living our lives. And he does this by saying, don't you get it? Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you and drag you into court? Like the example I gave earlier, it's the, you know, it's the popular kids that treat you like garbage, but for some reason you're, you're drawn to them, you try to fit in so you can be part of that group. In this case, in the Roman courts of those time, if you were of a higher status, you cannot, uh, or if you were a lower status, you couldn't sue somebody of a higher status than you. You couldn't take them to court. You didn't have that right or privilege in the Roman court. Only people of higher status could take people of lower status to court. In the Jewish courts, the Jewish courts, the, the, the goal was to treat people equally, much like it is in the United States, right? We have laws set up and rules set up that everyone would have equal representation under the law. That's all well and good, right? But how many know it doesn't really work out like that? The Jewish courts were the same way. They wanted people to be treated equally, but the richer and more affluent people, they could articulate their case better before the courts. Or they could hire somebody to, to, to defend for them, to argue their case for them. But the people that were poor, they may not be, have as much education. They weren't able to articulate their case or they couldn't hire somebody to do it for them. It's, it's much like in today's society, if you're poor, you get the public defender, but if you're a multimillionaire, you can, you know, the best lawyer that money can buy. We're all treated equally under the law, but the truth is there are some things that, that skew the balance a little bit. It was these same people, these worldly people, these rich people, with worldly stature and influence, who often treated them like garbage, dragged them into the court. But they were showing favor to them. He says, this is wrong. 
These are also the same people who blasphemed the name of Jesus. They weren't even Christians. They were just, they had no faith, no love for Jesus. But still, these people were jockeying for their favor. And Paul says, when you do that, you dishonor the poor man, the people that are rich in faith and are going to inherit the kingdom. And it just doesn't make any sense. As Christians, we should be able to see that this is wrong. If a millionaire were to come into this church and I were to treat him differently because I'm hoping that, man, he's a millionaire, 10% of a million dollars a year, start doing that, that would be absolutely wrong of me. I am dis- I'm dishonoring, I would be dishonoring what Jesus did for all of us to treat somebody differently like that. Because at that point, I would be declaring that he is more valuable than everybody else in this room, which is simply not true. We need to make sure that we're seeing people through the eyes of Jesus and not the lens of this world. In James 2, 8-9, it says, if you, really, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. Loving your neighbor as we love ourselves pretty much sums up the law. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to lie about him or lie to him. You're not going to sleep with their spouse. If you love your your neighbor, you're definitely not going to murder him. You're not going to covet the things that he he has because you'll be rooting for him. If you love your neighbor, you want what's best for them, not what's best for yourself at their expense. Jesus said it's one of the greatest commandments to love your neighbor. In Mark 12, 28-31, he says, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that, he answered them well, and asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. For there is no commandment greater than these. If you keep both of those, then you have kept the entirety of the law. Love God, love your neighbor. It's that simple. Now, unfortunately, we have all failed in all of these at one point in our life. That's why Jesus went to the cross, because because of the brokenness that we were born with, it is impossible for us to keep those things. If you remember in the book of Romans, Paul was talking about... um, the desire to do good, the desire to, to follow the law, but the sin inside of him wouldn't let him do that. He kept failing. And it wasn't until Jesus came that we were able to finally fulfill the law in our lives because Jesus fulfilled it in our lives. He paid the penalty for us and broke us from the bondage of sin and no longer had a hold over us so we could finally do the things that we agreed with. Even though before Jesus, even if we agreed with the law, we agreed that it was good, we wanted these things, we just couldn't follow them in our lives. It was impossible. But the great news for us is that Jesus has fulfilled the law. He's paid the penalty And the ultimate result is that we can live these things out in our lives. We can finally love God and love our neighbor with no influence from sin. However, when we show partiality, we become transgressors of the law, as James says here. If you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. 
In Romans 13, 8 through 10, it says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, because love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now it's true. As Christians, we're no longer subject to the law as such. We're not under the law, we're under the law of liberty. But God never changes. The reason why God put this law, because these are the requirements to be right with Him. Now thankfully, Jesus died so that the penalty would be paid, that we would be right with Jesus, but it doesn't change that this is what God wants for our lives. This is what He expects. The Jews were always trying to live according to the law, and they were continually failing. But now that Jesus has come, we can live from grace and finally be able to live according to the law. Not based, We're not living according to the law to earn our salvation like the Jews were doing. They weren't trying to make themselves clean by following these rules. But because we are finally free, because sin has no power in our lives, because we are finally pure on the inside, we can begin to live this way on the outside. How God intended us to live. Amen? So James continues on, speaking of the law, he says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You ever notice we often try to categorize our infractions? Anybody ever done that? We, in this world, we think that, you know what? Lying is a little bit less worse than adultery, which is a little bit less worse than murder. We categorize sins in this society. But the truth is, if you have broken one law, you have broken them all. Sin is sin as far as God's concerned. Jesus pointed this out to the scribes and the Pharisees. He said in Matthew 23, 23, it says, Woe to you, you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. And he says, These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. He doesn't say, Wait, these weightier matters of the law, the the justice and mercy and faithfulness, these are the ones you should have focused on. Forget about all that other stuff. No, he says, you should have done these without neglecting the others. We have to keep the entirety of the law, especially for the Jews at that time. Just because the stuff on the surface looked good. I mean, when they were giving to the poor, they were giving all these things. That's what people saw. That was that Basically, they were being heroes of the word and not really doers. They were just doing stuff on the surface to look good. But behind closed doors, they weren't doing the right things. They were breaking the laws in other areas, but from the outside looking in, they looked A-OK. But Jesus said that they should have done the one without neglecting the rest. So James is currently dealing with showing partiality. That's what the last few scriptures that we've looked at have been, been dealing with. And what he's trying to say is in the case of God's law, there is no difference between showing partiality or adultery or murder. It's all sin. It's all the same. 
It's not like our, our legal system where a misdemeanor is less than a felony. As far as God's law is concerned, as far as sin is concerned, there's no misdemeanors and there's no felonies. There's just sin. And a lesser sin does not incur a lesser penalty. So now you're asking me, or at least if I was you, I would be asking me, why is all this preaching on the law? I thought we weren't under the law anymore. But what James is doing is just using this as a teaching tool. Because the next scripture, after he keeps talking about the law, he says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. James recognized that we're not under the Old Testament law anymore. But he was using it as an illustration. And he's saying that under the Old Testament law, if you broke one law, you broke them all. So the same goes for today. There's no difference in sin. When we're, when we're committing transgressions, you're breaking, you're, you're sinning. It's sin is sin. So he says, if that's the case, let's stop living like, like that. Let's start living like people that are under the law of liberty. That means that we are free in Jesus Christ. We've been liberated from the law, but more importantly, we've been liberated from sin. There was one time that I was, I was whining to Pastor Mike about my son. We were having a meeting some years ago, and, and uh, instead of being comforting, you know, comforting my pain or agreeing with me about how, how rough I have it, you ever notice when you complain to people, that's actually what you're looking for? Just them to like, I get it, I understand. But as a good teacher does, that's, that's not what he did. As I was whining and complaining about these things, and I don't even remember what it was. I don't remember what I was complaining about, but I remember the lesson. And the lesson was, remember the patience and the forgiveness that God has shown you time and time again. I think that's what I was complaining about, was, was why do I have to keep telling him to do the same stuff over and over and over? And Pastor Mike's like, just remember that God does the same thing to you, but he still loves you, he still has patience with you, he still has mercy on you. You see, that's the way we need to live our lives. The way that God works with us is how we should work with others. That's what it means here is to, to <clears throat> speak and act as those who are judged under the law of liberty is to extend the same grace and mercy that was extended to us to others. It says, For judgment with, is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. And that's what happens in our lives. If we have really been changed on the inside, if, if God is at work inside of us, we will show mercy to others. We won't look at them with partiality, but we'll look at them through the eyes of Jesus like He looks through at us. But those who show <clears throat> no mercy, which is essentially those who have not been changed on the inside, those who are living by the, the standards of this world, then they're not going to receive mercy either. But as people that have been changed on the inside, we need to look at people the same way that God looks at us, showing no partiality at all. Amen? Amen. All right, and now we're getting to the, the heavy topics, the, the, the one that divides camps on one side and the other, faith and works. In James two fourteen through 17 it says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and, and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? 
So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. In the Christian community, there seems to be almost two polar opposites when it comes to dealing with faith and works. On one side, we have there those who like to look at this scripture and argue that salvation requires works. If you want to be saved, you have to be doing the right things. Because it's your works that saves you. And they use stuff like verse 17 here says, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. They say, see that? Without, without works, faith is, is dead. Therefore, you have to have works to be saved. On the other hand, there are those that believe that salvation is a gift. And that's that. Once you get saved, you're saved. No matter what you do, you don't have to do anything else. And they'll look at scriptures like Ephesians 2, 8-9 that says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Or the, the quote Romans 3.28 that says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And they say, see, you don't need any works at all. It's just faith. Faith, faith, faith. That's all you have to have. And you're saved. But the reality is, is that the truth is somewhere in the middle. The truth is that Yes, it requires faith to be saved. And faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is all that is required to be saved. But you know what happens when you get saved? You start having good works. And that's what James is dealing with here. You see, at first glance, if if we just pick out one or two scriptures that James is dealing with, it seems like James is in contradiction with the rest of the writers of the New Testament. Matter of fact, I want to say, I want to say it was Martin Luther was lobbying that the book of James just be removed from the Bible because he thought it was in such contradiction with, with being saved by faith. But if we take it out of context, if we just read those things, I can see what people are saying. But when we take it in the light of the entire New Testament, we see what James is actually trying to say. Matter of fact, if you just read the entire few scriptures dealing with faith and works, you can see that that's not what James was talking about. It's only when you pick out one scripture at a time. We can't cherry-pick scriptures to prove our point. So if James is not trying to say that you have to have works or you can't be saved, what is he trying to say? What does it mean to say that you have faith and not have works? Is he saying that your faith is not enough? Is James trying to tell us that, that faith isn't enough to be saved? Do we have to work at it? Do we have to do something else? And I'd say that that's, that's not what James is trying to say. But he's, what he's saying is that if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? He's not saying that you have to have works to be saved. What James is dealing with is the type of faith that you have. Because real faith, a saving faith, is the kind of faith that's going to make sure that a brother is, is, is clothed and has food when they're, when they're lacking these things. Real faith, the faith that changed something inside of you is going to produce in you a different person who's going to live and act like Christ. That's what he says. So faith by itself and does not have works is dead. Faith by itself with nothing to show for it is just lip service. And he goes on to explain that in more detail as we go in in James uh, chapter 2 verses 18 through 19. He says, but someone will say you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. He says, you believe that God is one and do well, even the demons believe and shudder. See, James now is going to take the time to clear up what he just said. 
So instead of taking that one scripture and trying to declare that as, as, as the gospel, he says, you know what? Let me explain. He says that you show me, he says, you say that you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. He says, show me, let me see what you got. He says, but I'm going to show you my faith by my works. You can see that my faith is real because it's producing something inside of me. It's producing an outward, uh, something visible. It's, it's action. Faith demands action. You know, and, and like I said, I think Martin Luther wanted the whole book removed because it wasn't in line with the gospel. But the truth is, it lines up extremely well with the gospel. Starting with what Jesus said. In Matthew seven fifteen through 20, he said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous woods, wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. And a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Praise God. Let me drink a water real quick. There is evidence of who people are on the inside by the fruits of their life, by their works. There's another word for fruits. Jesus said that we also should be easily recognizable. In John 13, 34 through 35, it says, In a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus said that we should be recognizable by the way we live our lives, by the fruits of our lives. Paul said it like this in Colossians 3, 8-10, But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You put off your old practices and you put on new practices that are in the image of God. In other words, people should be able to see our faith. It's not the works that save us, but real faith produces a change, a changed life that is identified by its works. That's all James is talking about here. If you go around running around saying, I have faith, I have faith, I have faith, and don't ever live that out in your life, he's, he's not attacking faith itself. He's attacking the kind of faith that doesn't produce anything inside of you. And he says, you know what? You know who else who has that kind of faith? Demons. He says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. See, demons have faith in God. Demons have faith in Jesus. They believe He exists. Demons can't be saved. So obviously there is a type of faith in Jesus and God that does not result in salvation. And that's what he's talking about here. People that say they believe, but there's no changed heart. They don't have saving faith. They just believe that, you know, there's plenty of people in this world that believe that Jesus existed, that He lived. They say, oh, I believe in God. But if they don't believe in Jesus, if they haven't accepted that free gift of salvation, then they're not saved. You can believe that God is real and go to church your whole life, but if you haven't accepted Jesus into your heart and have a personal relationship with Him, that He's your Lord and Savior, then you're still not saved. And that's what James is talking about here. 
Saving faith results in a changed life. That's what he says. I'll show you my faith by my works. You'll know me. You'll know that I'm a disciple. You'll know that I'm a Christian by looking at my life. And we'll go ahead and finish up here as James continues. He says, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that, without, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. What he's saying is that you look at Abraham's life and he, he believed God. Matter of fact, the Bible says that, that he believed God and it was credited as righteousness. But how do we know that he believed God? How do we know that he trusted God? Because he was willing to put his son up on the altar. If he would have said, if God would have said, I want you to sacrifice my son. And he says, God, I believe that you can take care of my son. I believe that, that you could even raise him from the dead if I sacrificed him. But I, yeah, I'm not going to do that. If he, would have, if he would have operated like that, then he wouldn't have had real faith. Because he was saying it out of his mouth, but his actions didn't demonstrate what he was believing. And he continues on, And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Rahab did the same thing. She sent the messengers out off the side of the wall down in a basket. And had she not done that, she says, oh no, I believe God, I trust God. But she wasn't willing to, to walk that out. That's not real faith. Real faith produces action in our lives. And he says, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Faith without works is just lip service. It's not the works that save you. Let it never be said that it's the works that save you. Because we can't earn salvation. Salvation is a free gift that we receive by placing our trust in Jesus Christ. But the kind of faith that results in salvation always results in a changed life. Now, it may not be overnight. You know, everything may not be perfect as soon as you accept Jesus, but you will begin to see a change. You will see a difference, even if it is slowly. Because real faith produces a changed life. Faith demands actions. Otherwise, it's just talking a good game. And the truth is, that's how hypocrites in the body of Christ are born. So let us be a people who hear the word and do it. Let us be a people who sees people as Jesus does and shows no partiality. And let us be a people who have faith that is visible. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and stand to our feet.